Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Premier, thank you very much for taking the time. And how are you doing? How's the province handling the uh, the pandemic and the numbers these days? We're, we're, we're doing pretty good here, Roy, and thanks for uh, taking some time on Sunday here, and thanks for what you do in communicating with Canadians uh, across this nation with your show. Um, you know, we're, we're doing all right. We're, we're having the localized, um, you know, outbreaks here and there, um, but we're able to identify them and contact trace them, and, and thus far we've been able to isolate those uh, in a fairly good fashion. And uh, But in general, we're doing pretty good, and that is a credit to the people of this province. They are... Uh, for the most part, obeying um, the, the public health orders that have been put forward, and that's allowing us to really start to focus in on an economic recovery here in Saskatchewan, and hopefully we can across Canada very shortly. Yeah, we need it. Boy, do we need it. Uh, we spent some time over the last couple of months with the uh, parliamentary budget officer, Yves Giroux, and he said to us twice that uh, what was spent during the first lockdown could be done, but only done once. Premier, um Looking ahead to uh, to Wednesday and the uh, speech from the throne, I'd like to ask you this out of the gate. What can Canada and what can Canadians afford and what can we not afford as far as any really massive spending announcements in the speech may be concerned? Well, I, I would say we, we can't afford a whole lot more. And I agree with the uh, parliamentary budget officer that we have invested and invested heavily. And some of it has been very targeted and effective, and, and, and some, I think, um, could probably use some, some rethought and some revisions. I, I would say in the speech from the throne, there, there's two things that, that we need to look at. Uh, the first is to correct the, 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 the relationship that has deteriorated over decades between the federal and provincial government. It's the fiscal relationship, and you're going to hear premiers talking about, as Premier Ford was, the, the Canada health transfer and how that was a 50-50 arrangement a number of years ago. Now we're down to about 22% federal investment. But, you know, there's the flawed equalization uh, formula. There is the, the little brother to the equalization formula, which is the fiscal stabilization program. All of these uh, need some attention between the provincial and federal government. I think it speaks to the crossroads that this prime minister and this government is at, um, at, at this speech, at this date, um, with the speech of the throne really being the indicator on the direction that they're going to take with the fiscal provincial relationship and whether or not they want to actually uh, look at correcting that. That's the first piece. The second piece is more uh, to the recovery. Um, you know, we hear this talk around an ambitious, ambitious green agenda, and I've said in my letter that better not be code for shutting down industries in this nation, in particular the the energy industry or the or the mining industry for that for that matter, because it would then it would not be an ambitious green agenda. Uh, that would actually be a vicious green agenda uh, here in in Canada. We need to uh, really look at the industries that cr- have created wealth traditionally. Um, in our provinces and in our regions. And we need to look at how we are going to not only maybe support them, but give them some laneway so that they can recover and grow and and, re- and provide jobs uh, into the future. Let's be clear. There's no government that's going to all of a sudden, in a speech from the throne, uh, invent a whole new green economy. We need to look at the industries that have created wealth and jobs across this nation that are already sustainable, I would put forward and have many times. And we need to look at how they are going to be successful in the short term and how we strategically are going to situate ourselves so that they can be successful in the in the longer term. This is the crossroads that the Prime Minister is at, 
and he has a lot of weight in his shoulders. There's a, I, I think he, there's, you know, a lot, uh, a lot uh, riding on the direction that he's going to take next week. Well, he's the man who talked about uh, the recovery being um, significantly driven by uh, by a green resurgence. He's the man who has led this position. Have you received any signals about what might be coming down on Wednesday? Have you heard anything that would suggest that traditional, economically uh, strong and uh, and economy-driving sectors may, in fact, be disadvantaged by the throne speech? I, 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 well, I, I think the fact that we had penned a letter indicating um, some of the, the concerns that we have around the language, around an ambitious green agenda, um, and, and that may be, quote, for shutting down some of these industries, uh, most certainly speaks to the fact that we do have concerns. Um, we do have concerns that there will be, you know, regulations that will be uh, leaned in on on the speech from the throne, like advancing uh, the, uh, a clean fuel standard that does uh, disproportionately, again, impact certain industries that seem to be uh, located in Saskatchewan, Alberta, and, and Newfoundland. Uh, we do have concerns that uh, as people are, are are being supported in many cases by the federal government, the federal government continues to move forward with ineffective policies that we are t- actually taking them to the Supreme Court of Canada next week on, which is uh, you know the the infamous uh, carbon tax, uh, the most ineffective cash grab uh, that this this federal government has uh, has enacted. Um, as well as if we truly want to, you know, do the right thing with respect to providing emissions free power, there are other options that the provinces are leading on, such as the small modular reactor option. And and we heard uh, Seamus O'Regan make some comments around that's absolutely necessary if we are going to move into a a lower carbon uh, um, environment in the next number of decades. So, you know, let's have those discussions with the federal government and let's get on with it. Let's get rid of the ineffective policies like the carbon tax, the clean fuel standard um, that that is put on in, in the method that the way that they are, are implementing it. And let's get on with some of the, uh, the technologies and innovation that can actually uh, get us to where we want to be. Premier Mo, let me come back to the uh, the question or the issue of the four premiers, west to east, Francois Legault, Doug Ford, Brian Pallister, Jason Kelly, requesting a combined $70 billion from the Trudeau government to direct toward health care in the provinces. You you touched on that. Uh, does Saskatchewan have a similar request for the Trudeau government? Yeah, the request uh, is coming from the Council of Federation table. So it is supported by um, all of the premiers, and, and the, the you know two of them are the the fiscal stabilization program, uh, which is really a response to a flawed equalization program and on how we can uh, support um, uh, jurisdictions in this nation that have experienced a, a fairly rapid downturn. And, uh, Alberta, to an extreme level, Saskatchewan and Newfoundland as well, have experienced uh, a downturn predominantly due to two things. Um, one is the, the energy price, yes, uh, around the world has been somewhat uh, fluctuating and mostly heading down the last number of years. But two is some very alarming policies that have come from the federal government that are nothing short of an attack on on this industry. And so the uh, the, the fiscal stabilization program is a fail safe, I guess, a stopgap that it's supposed to step in in those those uh, uh, unfortunate times in pretty quick order. It's a flawed program as well, and so they've asked for some changes to that. And ultimately, the the health transfer, which is a, a tremendously um, uh, important. Um, uh, funding agreement between the federal government and the provincial governments, one that began as 50-50 partners a number of decades ago, has slipped over successive governments. There's about 22% is now funded by the federal government. And this needs to be 
um, funding that is flexible for the provinces. It can't be a pharmacare program that will be counted as, as healthcare funding. That's that's additive. I think Brian Callister had spoken about having a solid foundation in the uh, in the home before you start adding on extra levels. So we that that is absolutely imperative that we have those discussions. Uh, listen, provinces are and regions in this country are going to be faced with not only the economic recovery, but how do we recover? on some of the surgery backlogs and the diagnostic backlogs that we have across this nation post-COVID as COVID has impacted what's happening in our hospitals. So there's going to have to be that discussion uh, with the federal government on the Canada Health Transfer. And in fairness, um, the Prime Minister has indicated, this is one indication that we have had, is he does want to have a First Minister's meeting on the Canada Health Transfer exclusively this fall, and we look forward to that. Let me ask you this. Is there communication between Premiers about a possible second national lockdown and if so, are contingencies in place to protect an already significantly damaged provincial and national economy or economies from being exponentially harmed? So there's no uh, discussion among provinces or premiers on uh, any type of a national lockdown. And let, let me speak to Saskatchewan's perspective on this. And, and um, we're, we're going to do everything in our power. And I would say that we are not going to have any type of a lockdown here in this province um, that will uh, uh, negatively impact our economy uh, as we move forward. We have learned much about this virus. Um, We have also learned much about uh, the impact this virus has had and the response to this virus has had on our our economic fortunes. And I truly believe that as we move forward through whatever the time period is left until we can find a vaccine or whatever it is that finds us out the other side of of this this COVID-19 pandemic, um, that we understand the virus well enough that we will not be required to lock down wide swaths of our of our economic generating industries, uh, at least in Saskatchewan. We are committed to that. Um, we feel that there are other ways that we can control the spread of COVID-19. And I think most uh, provincial premiers across the nation are, I won't speak for them, but I think most of them are, are of close to that mindset. I mean, we know how much stress there is just talk to Dan Kelly, which we'll do later, of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. And Mr. Kelly has told us that up to uh, 225,000 businesses, small businesses in this country, could be in serious trouble. 155,000, really close to not making it. And that's they're the number one employer in, in Canada. So we have to protect our uh, our economy because without the economy, we have very little. And that brings us back to the throne speech. And the component requirements there, we, the, this is a huge picture. We don't know where it's going, do we, Premier? But we have to be smart about how we deal with resurrecting our economy and protecting it. We absolutely do. And we need to focus on, because we have already responded financially in a large way at the federal level, um, we don't have a lot of fiscal capacity left uh, to respond. Uh, listen, the, the deficit this year is going to be 25% larger than the last deficit, deficit, not the last deficit, the last budget um, that the previous government introduced, that Stephen Harper introduced in 2015, our deficit this year is 25% larger than that entire budget. So we don't have a lot of fiscal room left over the course of the next, you know, 10 to to 15 months. Um, We need the investments that we make from here on need to be outcomes-based, and they need to focus on the export-based economy that we have in this nation. If our, I always say, if our export industries do well, um, our retail industries across this nation will also do well as they rely on servicing, in many cases, the export-based economy that we have. Um, if we're going to focus in this throne speech on how do we recover uh, that export-based economy, we we will be taking a great step forward in this nation. If we're going to focus on how do we transition things like CERB to 
basic uh, incomes. Um, and that actually reminds me of the song you had when we first came in here. I think it was back to back in the USSR. Back in the USSR. Illusion. Um, but, you know, if we're looking at, at standardizing uh, the, the, the basic income in this nation rather than how we are trying to attract investment and create in private sector employment for people, um, we are taking a step backwards. And that is the crossroads that this, uh, this prime minister is at. Now, let's remember, he's in a minority government situation. And I think it's incumbent on other leaders, myself included, as well as Canadians in general, all 30 plus million of us, all represented by somebody that is part of a, a minority government party. And we'll be watching very closely how the opposition parties will be voting, what they will be saying with respect to the speech from the throne, and whether they'll ultimately pass it. Because we are in a very, Canadians are in a very powerful situation in this minority parliament. Uh, we spoke with the, uh, the parliamentary budget officer about the idea of a guaranteed annual income, and he pointed out that his office has done some costing. And the cost would be 45, between 45 and $91 billion for six months with no real outcomes with respect to creating jobs, uh, with respect to expanding uh, our GDP, expanding our economy in this nation. So if, if, that, if those are the steps that this, uh, this federal government is taking, um, um, that is a step backwards. Uh, that will be something that Saskatchewan will vigorously oppose. And I, and I think it's something that all Canadians should have a real look at where that places us over the course of the next five, ten years in this nation and what type of a nation uh, we actually want to leave to our children. It would be extremely disappointing if the if the prime minister and the federal government starts to take steps that direction. Premier, do you have a sense of uh, whether this speech from the throne has the potential to lead to a federal election before the end of the calendar year? And what would your thoughts be about that? You have an election coming up in Saskatchewan. Uh, there was just one in New Brunswick. We'll be speaking with Premier Higgs shortly. What is your sense about the potential for the speech from the throne leading to an election before the end of 2020? Well, I don't know if it will or, or if it won't. Um, I, I think everybody hopes that it wouldn't. Um, and it's, it's, it's on, the, on, the, on the governing party, the federal liberals, Prime Minister Trudeau and his, and his uh, colleagues, to put forward a, a speech from the throne that uh, is not only satisfactory to the majority of Canadians, um, but is also one that is satisfactory to the majority of, of the people in the parties in the House that are that are elected by uh, Canadians. You know, we go back to the, the federal election. Uh, we had a very divisive election. We have a, a separatist party in Quebec that is gaining ground. Um, we have all sorts of set, separatist sentiments uh, in the province where I live in neighboring Alberta. Um, and this is due to the policies that this, this prime minister and this government had brought forward over the first term of their government. And so... Uh, you know, I, I truly hope that we won't have an election, um, but that is the responsibility of the Prime Minister to bring forward right. a throne speech that will not trigger that. A lot of speculation about the possibility of a federal election before the end of the year and a lot of talk about what that might be like in the middle of a pandemic. How did you, uh, how did you find running an election campaign was like? Well, it was certainly different. I mean, we didn't do door-to-door campaigning. We limited our, our activities and um, we followed the rules of public health and um, certainly, we we uh, didn't have any difficulty in that regard. Although numbers were down, you know, you'd, you'd have a reception, and if you had uh, fifty people or the um, eighty or people outside, then it was a big event. And uh, you know, on, on the night of the election, we had an event, and we probably had sixty people in a great big hall. So uh, very different, but it can be done. And we felt we were at a, a safe time to do it. 
just as we're doing a lot of things in, in COVID. You know, we can't just sit and wait for a vaccine. We have to get on with life and just do it differently. Would you share with us, please, what it is you're doing in New Brunswick and what's been done in Atlantic Canada? Because you have the, the multi-province bubble, but how have you been conducting the uh, the pandemic business? Well, certainly, you know, we've been very conscious in our businesses and, and with public health from the beginning. We did shut down early, as, as you know, but we, we certainly don't want to get back to that. Businesses are paying attention uh, um, with with customers and showing that you know masks are being worn if needed if needed or take social distance. The um, uh, school startups been good, so you know so far so good. And um, although there are some angst there about uh, different different startups and and but parents you know and teachers both accepted it's time to move on. Um, I think that you know we do have a, a different scenario here than, than places with big cities. I mean we're uh, we're we're fortunate in that sense. Our, our city sizes are smaller, and we have wide open spaces here that helps us too to to, to do the social distancing and and uh, you know find uh, find ways to isolate it in ways that meet the health standards. So it's it's uh, it, people have uh, borders have been secured. You know we have great people working on our borders and great health officials that are. And health uh, people in the health world that have been really following the protocols. So so far so good, but we're we're in it, and we know it can change quickly, and and uh, we cannot lose lose sight of uh, of paying attention through this until we get a vaccine. Premier Wednesday will be the speech from the throne uh, delivered by the Trudeau government, a minority government in Ottawa. What can Canada, and we know the economic situation we're in to a certain extent, we have this massive deficit, we have a huge national debt, our credit rating has been downgraded, we can't, we can't really afford or can't count on interest rates remaining as low as they are. But which leads me to this question, what can Canada afford and what can Canada not afford as far as any really massive spending announcements in the speech may be concerned? Well, well, it is very much a concern. You know, and during our, our, our discussions with all the premiers and the prime minister through uh, the first part of the COVID and six months of, of, our, of our situation, we, the pandemic, we basically, you know, my question often was, what, what about next year? Because there could be a second wave and, and we have to be cognizant of that. And what, what uh, and we've all been appreciative of the help that the federal government has given. But, but there has to be a, a limit here through this because, you know, I, I uh, unfortunately, we're a province that has been dependent on the, uh, on the, the transfers, um, we're focused very much on on the the Canada health transfer, and I know that all prime minister, all premiers are because that is a big concern. But but there have my biggest concern I get when I travel around our province, and obviously I just did it for the last twenty eight days. Um, they can't find people to work. You know we can't get people to go to work. So there has to be the the throne speech has to reflect that you know there's a, there's a need to have people work in order to contribute to our province and. And, and to provide a um, you know a contribution that that is uh, meaningful to to other businesses and people that want to invest private money, we have to stop relying on taxpayer dollars uh, as governments and start pushing more towards um, you know private sector investment that creates employment, entrepreneurs that want to develop uh, in the regions and become more receptive to that. I, I'm very concerned that we keep going down this trail of of uh, you know kind of a guaranteed income and 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 what what does that do? Uh, because every location around the province, people are saying, I can't get people to work. Would you just uh, speak a little more to that? When you say you can't get people to work, what are you telling us? Well, in the sense of, you know, and, and it was needed. I know that all the businesses were shutting down. And as I say, I was thankful, too, that the federal government kicked in and, and helped us people that were losing their jobs because things were changing quickly. But now they're trying to start back up. And, and I'm seeing New Brunswick, you know, it's moving along quickly and, 
And so whether it be in, in, a, in any sort of plant, uh, you know, whether it's food processing, uh, whether it's in the agricultural field, um, it's, it's people that are, uh, you know, currently getting, getting uh, let's say, on, on syrup, really say, well, when this is over, I'll come back to work. Well, you know, it, it's kind of like we, we have to transition out of, off of the, the, um, the CERP program and into the workforce. And, and we need the federal government to start focusing on that. Temporary foreign workers, more flexibility in relation to people coming and staying here in our, in our province as opposed to working two months on a job and then going, going back. We, we want to bring families. We want to have more, more security around that and flexibility, which I believe the federal government is, is looking at, and we're working closely with them on that. But it is, it is a time now to transition, not the fact that we're, we're out of COVID, but to transition to life with COVID, but to an economy that is, that is once again being promoted and funded by private sector investment and, and not ignoring our resources that we have. I mean, we've been strong because of our natural resources. And I've said for a long time that transition is, as we transition to different economies, um, we do that in a, in a way that we don't lose sight of what's funded us for, some, for many generations. But we work through a process here, not just shut the switch off and, and, and kind of hope for the best. Now, the parliamentary budget officer has been on this program twice over the last few weeks. And Mr. Giroux pointed out that uh, we could afford, quotation marks around afford, even though when I ran the numbers by him, which he knew better than I, he said just hearing them from somebody else made his head spin. But he said we could do this once, not twice. You know, the CERB and the the other programs that we had. We can do it once. We cannot do it twice. So are you worried? Do you have concern about what's going to come out of Ottawa in that throne speech on Wednesday? Maybe a guaranteed annual income, which again, the parliamentary budget officer told us would cost between 45 and 91 billion for six months. Do you have concerns about, uh, uh, about that? I, Maybe a traditional industries I, being shoved aside? Yes. Yes, I do. I definitely have concerns about that. I think we need to have a, a long, hard discussion of how that works and, and how that can be fundable, uh, for the long haul and what, what that does, uh, to, to companies that are looking for full-time employment. Uh, I, I am concerned with that, and I think that CERB has given us what we've seen is we needed that, but we see now that there's a need to, to change in how we get people back to work. So I, uh, I think there's um, a lot of discussion going to have got to be held, and I am very concerned. We, we were in good shape on the budget when COVID hit. I mean, we have run into surplus. We were paying down our debt. I mean, we do have a significant debt, but we started paying it down. So we had a little cushion there. That helped us because uh, we had about a $600 million swing in our revenue. So we need to build that back. We can't keep digging the hole deeper, and we can't charge more taxes. I mean, New Brunswick is such as a tax, high-tax province, so I, I've committed no new taxes. So we have to prepare for the second wave because we can't go back the way we were. So let's not keep digging a hole. Let's just let's start to recover here across this country. And, and what, we, what I saw during COVID is an unprecedented working relationship with all the premiers and the prime minister's office. And the prime minister and, and certainly uh, Mr. Freeland was involved in all these discussions. And, and it went very well. I saw the, kind of the first time uh, a national pride in how we were managing together and working together. We need to do that on the recovery. So we're all on a page here that, that is getting our country back. Because right now I'm concerned federally how we're going to uh, keep the ship afloat. Which brings me to something I need to ask you. Two years ago, around Christmas time, you said on this radio program, you were talking to me, and you said, and this was after the uh, after the first minister's meeting, you said, we have to decide whether Canada is a nation or an ocean. Mm-hmm. I did say that, that and I feel, 
Well, yes, I do, and I and I still um, it, it is much of a concern. I think you know sometimes people will uh, when you get into a crisis like we did with this pandemic, you, a health crisis, you kind of refocus. You start paying attention to what's really important. So I think we can springboard off of that, and we can say, okay, we work together on this, and we worked as as a nation. And I saw that in that sense uh, during the pandemic, and it was it was uh, encouraging. So now let's do that as we go forward with other items. And the economic recovery is is getting ready for the next wave. Our health issues, which is across the country, but being uh, having an economic prosperity in our country like we have had for generations, how do we get back to that? So it it shouldn't be that difficult to lay out the the economics of it all and say, can we actually go down one road or another, or is this is this wishful thinking, political wishful thinking? And I think what we learned through COVID is we can find ways to work together and have a a prosperous future thinking as opposed to just a political thinking. And and that's what's needed right now. And I was encouraged by the COVID uh, cooperative spirit. And I'd like to think we can carry that going and our nation can be better for it. If final question for you, Premier Higgs, if, uh, if that cooperative spirit disappears after Wednesday, are we capable of uh, holding and running a, a national election during the pandemic before the end of the year? I, I would be surprised if there's a federal election before the end of the year. Um, are we capable? Yes. But in the big cities, you know, we're seeing in, in uh, a number of provinces, there's still some serious COVID cases. Um, you know, I, I wasn't experiencing that in New Brunswick. And in the smaller provinces, you know, we can we can work through that. To have a national campaign, um, I, I would be surprised if the federal government would exercise that this fall. Um, I would think that that'll happen later, maybe next spring, depending depending where our our situation is, um, because it it would be you, you've got to pay attention, and you know we, we're still going through the 14 day period after the election, but we feel we're we're uh, we will be fine, but but that doesn't mean there there'll be some care area, so I, I I just think that probably a federal election would be a little premature this fall. Get behind the businesses, the entrepreneurs who live in our communities, who who deliver every day, who sponsor the kids' baseball teams or hockey teams, who are there as part of our of our of our mosaic. We're really helping not only the community, but eventually we help the country. It's a huge, huge deal, and and it's one of the reasons why we're so so glad to have customers starting to come back to small and medium sized companies. So many of them have really, you know, were forced to close their doors really had no option to, to earn an income, but the jobs they create, the contributions they make to local communities, the tax dollars that they pay that provide the services for all of us, these are just some of the contributions that, that small and medium-sized business owners make across the country. That, that doesn't happen to anywhere close to that degree when we're buying things on Amazon. Yeah. And, and the CFIB, you pointed out that uh, I think it was up to 225,000 businesses are under stress, 155,000 under more stress, and 55,000, that, that number 55,000 being potentially going out of business goes back to, I think, July. Um, what are the priorities, knowing all of this, knowing where we are, knowing that the pain still exists in the small business community, fewer customers, lower spending, um, what are the priorities, the key priorities that you have for the throne speech? We've got, uh, you know, we've, we're, our eyes are definitely turned to Ottawa this week to make sure that we can clean up some of the support programs that are, are there for small business. 
Uh, we've got to make sure that programs like SIBA and the rent support program are delivering for more businesses. And still there are, as we've discussed many times, there are some huge, huge gaps uh, in those programs themselves. But our main message, Sato, is, is let, let's not make this worse. We know and, and accept that there's going to be a giant deficit right now. And in fact, you know, we're, my organization itself is calling for government to come to the help of, to come to the aid of small and medium-sized companies and people across the country. That's going to cost us money, put more dollars on, on deficits and, and leading to long-term debt. But goodness, we can't afford to have non-COVID permanent new spending decisions added to the mix at this time. COVID's not over. And if we start embarking upon a whole host of new green energy programs or a whole host of new social programs at this very vulnerable time, uh, you can imagine just how difficult it's going to be uh, to, to unbury ourselves from some of these challenges. I worry particularly about employment insurance. Government's already made a bunch of temporary changes, changes that I think make some sense to respond to a pandemic. But if they're converted to permanent changes, not only are the costs of those going to be giant for the future, but it can change Canada's work ethic. Roy, there was a change made that you can work as little as 130 hours and receive $400 a week uh, for, for a half a year. Four hundred dollars a week if you if you if you work a hundred and thirty hours over the past year. I understand why we have to be careful and, and allow people to have an income during the pandemic, but imagine if that were a permanent policy change uh, that that somebody that could work three hours a week for a year could then get a four hundred dollar benefit for for six months if they don't work. Those are the kinds of things that I worry could become permanent policy before the end of this. Well, and, and rightly so, uh, Dan. Th- numbers like that are only detrimental to uh, to the realities that we face. We just spoke with Premier Higgs of New Brunswick, and he said employers are having trouble getting people to go to work. Yeah. Um, and very simply, he said, and I asked him about it after he made the statement. I asked him about it again, and he said, we're having trouble getting people to go to work. And a program like that, that uh, Mr. Trudeau, I would, uh, I'm not going to ask you to say this, but I'm going to say it, is, uh, is an election, uh, you know, uh, which let's get people to vote for us because we're going to give them money. Um, a program like that's only going to hurt. Well, look, and, and we know that during the pandemic that there are some gaps, some challenges that are going to be presented. Of course. The when the government responded by, by issuing CERB, it, it did create problems. Now they're converting that into EI changes. To a certain extent, we're going to have to grit our teeth and bear that, even as employers, and we struggle to bring people back because people are not just afraid, you know, not just getting more money in some instances from government than working, but we've also spent, you know, a number of months telling them not to leave their home, save as a weekly trip to the grocery store. So to a certain extent, that's understandable. Where I think we need to draw the line as Canadians, though, is if we say, okay, our experience during the pandemic is going to cause us to make these permanent policy changes. That, to me, is the step too far, and what I really worry about could be added through the throne speech. So I'm hoping against hope that that's not. I, I will say, listening to the media reports, there seemed to be, seemed, the, the Fed seemed to be scaling back some of the giant, lavish spending programs that they had rumored only a few short weeks ago. I'm hoping that that will be good news and that there will be moderation used in the throne speech. But there are some real worries. We, I'll, I'll remind your listeners that Canada pension plan premiums 
are already on a seven-year, we're already two years into a seven-year increase in Canada pension plan premiums. Yes, there'll be eventual increases in benefits uh, for some 40 years from now, but the premium increases are starting right now. I don't know too many people that can afford a cut in their paycheck or for an employer a cut in their overall payroll budgets uh, in order to pay for another CPP increase that's starting on January 1st. So we're asking the government to put that on ice. There's a carbon tax increase, federal carbon tax increase expected uh, in the spring of next year. That, in my mind, should also be put on hold until we get through the pandemic. Let's not make this worse. Um, how many small businesses in this country? Is there a number? I'm going to go back to what we said earlier. 155, 225, I've heard those numbers from the CFIB. Is there a number of small businesses that are um, on the edge? Yeah, that is the number on the edge. We've got across Canada 1.1 million employers, uh, businesses that employ other people. If you add to it the self-employed, there's another 2.5 million altogether. And and we estimate somewhere in the range of 55 to 225,000 businesses will be taken out exclusively due to COVID-19 as a result of the first wave. If we add to that a second wave of, of COVID outbreak, and I remember we've already seen in some provinces like British Columbia more businesses being shut down again. If that happens, those numbers are going to look like a lowball estimate of the numbers that aren't going to make it. And with every one of those employers, you can imagine how many jobs are going to be affected. That could be a million and a half jobs that, that disappear from Canada on a permanent basis if we're not careful. And, and, and of course, on top of that, there are, there are very few employers that are actually right now creating new, uh, very few entrepreneurs that are saying, hey, this is a great time to start a new business. So we're not getting the business pickup that we need. Uh, often a business closure is met with and then a rebound and another business coming in behind it. I'm not seeing. I'm not sensing that there's a whole bunch of those right now. Right? And I was looking at uh, some of the releases from uh, CFIB.ca, and uh, what I saw repeatedly was fewer customers, lower spending, consistent across Canada. You're you're absolutely right. Uh, only 28 percent of employers have sales back to normal levels. 28 wow. percent. And I think wow. I really worry about some of the hospitality industry as the weather starts to change. It's uh, colder right now where I am. People are less often going to be sitting out on patios in the restaurant, uh, open, you know, le- leaving perhaps open-air shopping destinations where they're walking around. So so we can imagine as, as winter sets in, there are going to be a whole bunch of businesses that are going to struggle even more so. Tourism, I mean, there have been Canadians, thank goodness, taking vacations within the country right now. But are we going to be doing that when, when people are used to a winter holiday? Are they going to be lining up to take uh, a winter holiday in Canada, perhaps, to the same number? So that, that again, will take some businesses out. I, I think as we go through the fall, uh, yes, there are going to be some businesses recovering, and that's a good thing. But many, many others are going to have additional struggles on top of everything else. We've spoken over the last number of weeks with Mr. Greg Paris, his daughter, Caitlin, was one of five young people who were killed by Matthew de Grood in Calgary in 2014. And we spoke about the Alberta Review Board, and uh, Mr. Paris and the families have uh, appeared before the Review Board annually, which is the process as the uh, boards decide in each province what they're going to do as far as individuals who are declared not criminally responsible, or NCR, 
of the acts, the criminal acts they otherwise would be committed of committing. They move from the criminal justice to the health system because it's decided they have mental health issues and so they are no longer in the criminal system and they're not going to be convicted of anything. And they can be released at any time uh, without any restrictions whatsoever on an annual basis. And it's happened. You heard Carol Dedelli with Mr. Paris on this program twice. So this past Tuesday, the um, Alberta Review Board uh, reconvened, and Mr. Paris was there with other family. And one of the most abhorrent things is how, how, how families are treated generically by the Canadian justice system. And you heard Mr. Paris tell us the last uh, time we talked that the victim's impact statement that he delivered, his family delivered, uh, was redacted by the uh, by the justice system, which is outrageous. Greg, thank you very much for coming back on the program. I hesitate to ask, but uh, this past Tuesday, you heard something that you haven't heard before, and that is some acknowledgement of the suffering, some acknowledgement of the need to properly uh, respect the, the five young people who were killed by DeGroote, and you heard the Alberta Review Board take responsibility, I think, or take action that other review boards in this country have not done. Yes, uh, thanks, Roy. Um, as I said to you last week, um, I had some hope uh, based on the review on the 8th that, um, that certain uh, privileges that have been granted last year in 2019 would be revoked, and they actually were revoked. So very pleased that we have a small positive glimmer of hope and slowing down the reintegration of Matthew DeGroote into the community. How did they change his reality, and how did they explain what they were doing? Because the focus generally has been on moving the individual forward and out. Um, I think they just took, uh, you know, I think it's quite significant that they had four new board members that had been appointed by uh, the then Justice Minister Doug Schweitzer here in Alberta. I think there was a change of viewpoints brought to the board, and there was a sense of logic, I think, and common sense applied to the evidence that had been presented to them on September 8th. And they recognized a, a real need um, to exercise some caution related to the evidence and to the risk that Matthew DeGroote, um portrays to, to the community at this point. It's interesting that while they were doing this, prior to the decision that they took, they still redacted your victim's impact statement. Yeah, and 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 that was noted by pretty much all of the parents, you know, from the five families. Each one of us, in turn, uh, you know, made a comment uh, during our victim impact statement to the level of redaction that goes on and and, you know, we're only really able to talk about the impact to us. Obviously, it's been uh, tremendous. And, you know, you don't want to repeat yourself year in and year out when they have the same victim impact statement. But the second we make any commentary as to, you know, what should happen to him, um, that gets redacted. We're only allowed to talk about the impact on ourselves. Greg, I was thinking earlier this morning uh, when I was making writing some notes about our conversation for myself and uh what's happening in alberta what you and the other families are uh, accomplishing and what we heard on tuesday has national implication because ncr appeals are being entered more frequently 
including by the individual charged with the murders in uh, Atlantic Canada, including two police officers. It's become more, again, it's become um, repeated more that NCR is being claimed. So I think what's happened on Tuesday may impact that trend. Well, I hope that's the case. I mean, uh, in in the five reviews that we've been part of, there's never been any sort of backtracking by the board. There's always just been acceleration in terms of the privileges provided. But the fact that they revoked every privilege that involves unsupervised access to the community that had been granted last year, I think is, um, I hope, ground-setting, and I hope it does help other other cases and other families in other parts of the country because uh, I've noticed as well that, you know, since the law changes and makes it more difficult to keep uh, NCR patients um, locked up longer, there's more and more people, including another case in Alberta that just occurred, where you can see that NCR is going to be the defense that's uh, presented because you, you definitely get out quicker in that system than you do the penal system at this point in our country. Yeah. The uh, issue, one of the issues of great concern that you spoke about and Carol spoke about was that uh, in DeGroote's case, you heard clearly from medical experts that if the treatment were to stop working or if he were to get off treatment, he would devolve and uh, it would turn into a potentially catastrophic reality for the community that he's in. Yes, and, and you know, I, I take some solace that the board mentioned that at least two or three times in their current disposition, outlining that, any, you know, anyone that be caught in his sphere of paranoia and hallucination would, would be ultimately a victim. And, you know, they've used the word severe and catastrophic, and there'd be multiple casualties. Let's talk about uh, something that's, Really, I know very close to you and the families and close to the people of Calgary and is going to be a tremendous um, um, tribute to uh, to all five of your, your children. And that is the Quintera Legacy Garden. And uh, we'll tell people how they can contribute and help as far as that's concerned. But tell our listeners across the country, please, what, what you've done and, and what, what awaits. Yeah, um, thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. This came together almost four years ago now with with an idea that was brought forward to us by a wonderful individual. And um, basically, um, it's a garden to give back to the community of Calgary that's been so supportive of, of ourselves. And really, it's a, it's a musical garden with, uh, with a dedicated performance space, much like uh, the Sharon Lois and Brown Music Garden that some people in Toronto are aware of, but, you know, on a probably a grander scale. So we're trying to give back to the community and at the same time uh, provide a legacy for our kids. Um, our five kids were all friends for a reason. They, they had a love of the arts, including dance, music, and, and art. And they had a real strong uh, orientation and love and concern for their community. So... All of that came together um, and became Quintero Legacy Garden, and you know it's become a you know a, a relatively large part of the healing process for all the families involved here, and, and a real positive place of of energy. And then we're hoping that for Calgarians and visitors alike, um, they can come and enjoy the, the space, 
whether they're experiencing grief or loss or, or, or looking for some sense of peace or comfort or tranquility. But at the same time, we're looking for it to be a place, um, even more importantly, a place of celebration, a place for music and uh, performance and community connection. And Greg, when does it open? Well, construction is almost complete, Roy, and the garden should unofficially open in the next week or two when the fences will come down. And we're looking forward to, uh, you know, sometime next spring uh, with the COVID restrictions hopefully being uh, lifted that we can have an incredible, wonderful opening event. Well, that's marvelous, and it is a wonderful tribute. I've looked at, uh, and you can find it online, everyone. It's QuinteroLegacyGarden.com, and that's Q-U-I-N-T-E-R-R-A, Q-U-I-N-T-E-R-R-A, so Quintera, LegacyGarden.com, and you can make a contribution as well to uh, to the creation of, uh, of the garden. Uh, Greg, thank you so much for spending time with us. I know that it's extremely difficult, and this is a, a huge issue for everybody in this country because, unfortunately and sadly, you never know who's going to be next affected. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.